in her testimony in court. And so Shelly Sterling, essentially, in this lawsuit, was claiming these things back. She knows that she's probably not going to see um, some of this money that's been ordered to be paid back. Initially, she claimed $3.6 million, but evidentiary-wise, uh, there was only evidence to support $2.8 million, which is still a lot of money. And um, Stiviano's lawyer is responding, you know what, um, this is a, this is kind of a ridiculous ruling here by the judge because now, you know, uh, a spouse who buys even a, a pack of gum has to essentially get the consent of the other spouse. These were gifts and they were made to Stiviano when Shelly and Don were separated. And of course, Shelly's lawyer says they were not separated and the judge did not buy that argument. The judge believed that these were um, gifts that should not have been given away by one spouse outside of the community property. So what I want to say about this is that um, in California, we are considered a community property state, which means that uh, any property and assets that's acquired by a spouse from the date that they're married, married until um, if and when they are legally separated is considered community property, and they each have half interest in that property. And so the ruling essentially in the Sterling case is that one spouse cannot just take uh, uh, community assets that in this case have been accumulated over six decades of marriage. I can understand why Don is bored. Um, and, um, you know, and give it away to a mistress. So the moral of the story is under California law, you can have a mistress, but you can't give away the family fortune to her, right? What do you think about this? Well, Chelsea? I'm so glad that we have now learned this lesson so that I don't go around making a living being a mistress. But at first, I was surprised actually because generally each spouse can spend the money that they acquire however they want. But in mm-hmm. this case, the judge said this was gifts. When you give money away, you don't have the right to just give money away to whoever you want without the consent of the other spouse. Right. So this isn't saying you need your spouse's permission to buy gum because in that situation, you're buying something. In this situation, Don was giving her gifts or money or what well, have you're you. buying it for a third party. You're gi- you're taking the community property and and uh, pushing it outside of the community, essentially to to pe- to other people. You're gifting it away, right? right? Yeah. So I guess that's not allowed. What a bummer for her. I guess she'll have to say bye bye to that uh, townhouse and the cars. Although she already crashed one of them. Well, and uh, apparently the cars, some of the cars were sold, and her lawyer saying she doesn't have this money, and uh, Shelley lawyer in response is saying, of course she has the money. She's hidden assets in, in uh, knowing that this would come up um, in this lawsuit. So That's giving her a lot of credit to think ahead like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so, and it's, it, it's also, I think one of the interesting issues that comes up here too is that um, Don Sterling has a lawsuit against his own wife for the sale of the Clippers team. Um, you know, he apparently has Alzheimer's and she claimed that he's not in a position to make decisions and that she needs to go forward with the sale. And now he's in federal court suing her. But then suddenly in this particular lawsuit, the Sterlings are in love and they've joined forces against Stiviano. Why? Because, you know, I'm pretty sure Don Sterling is not very happy with Stiviano. The fact that he had to lose the team over her, um, the release of those, those recordings, uh, I wouldn't think would make Sterling a happy person. And so now he's joined forces with his wife in this lawsuit and this ruling was in their favor. So it would be interesting to see what, if anything, has turned over. I I don't know, but this is not a marriage that I want. Even if I never accumulate that kind of empire, uh, I'll I'll be good keeping my sanity. That just seems nuts. Right. 
All right. Well, moving on to uh, on the docket, I'm going to turn it over to Chelsea. Okay, great. So we're going to first cover uh, an update to the story of Robert Bates. He is the reserve sheriff deputy who uh, confused his uh gun for his taser and shot and killed Eric Harris. He has been charged with second-degree manslaughter. And this week, a couple of things have happened, one of which is uh, claims surface that he is was never fully trained, that documentation of his training has been falsified, that, in fact, the sheriff's uh, office ordered the falsification of those records to give him credit for uh, field training that he never took and for gun uh, certifications that he never earned. Uh, there's also been allegations that former supervisors of Bates were reassigned when they refused to sign off on these false training records. Of course, the uh, sheriff's office denies um, any of these allegations, but something s- looks very off to me. Well, it, uh, to me, the Bates uh, case raises the issue of these um, buy a badge programs and the the general policy behind this on a on a, on a in the bigger picture is that we want to encourage volunteers in our community who can get properly trained and become reservists in law enforcement doing exactly what a, a professional paid law enforcement officer does but the issue is is they can't buy their way into being a cop they need to have the same level of training I think in this case, even if Bates had not falsified his records, if he, if in fact that allegation is true, um, his training would have been 240 hours versus the normal 600 hours required. And um, he's far less accountable to superiors than the paid, um, you know, uh, colleagues of his. And yet he's carrying the same deadly gun and the same badge. And I think that's the issue is that if we're going to, we want to encourage people to volunteer and we want more people in our law enforcement. um, But they need to be just as accountable and just as responsible and just as trained as, as the average officer. And I think that for me, that raises that issue. And and I also think that, um, you know, he's um, had he even had the sufficient training, who's to say that even the use of his taser would have been, you know, would have been um, uh, justified in this right, case. That's still alone could have wasn't. been right. That alone could have been um, excessive use of force. And now he's charged with manslaughter. And I think, Chelsea, you and I were discussing before we went on air um, about the manslaughter charges and whether his admission that he made a mistake can protect him. Um, well, this week, or just last Friday, Matt Lauer interviewed him, and mm-hmm. Matt Lauer had him stand up and show where his taser was kept, which is under the jacket and on his chest, versus where his gun was kept, which was obviously to the side. On his waist? Correct. Okay. And uh, so Matt Lauer said, how do you justify that, you know, mistake if they're in such different places? And Bates said, well, I've read that this happens to other people, and I think that anybody could make this mistake. Mm -hmm. So what kind of defense is that anybody could make this mistake? Well, just because anyone else could make a mistake or everyone else could make a mistake does not absolve him from the liability of making this very grave mistake, costing someone's life in this 
this case. Um, you know, I think that he's been coddled. He's been treated as a victim. Um, he is referring to himself as a victim, apparently, on this interview. In, in other words, he's got his wife and his kids and, you know, his lawyer and everybody's protecting I him. Just, it just boggles my mind. Everybody's rubbing his back yeah. as he apologizes and says, this was the second worst thing that's happened in my life. Well, okay, maybe the first, but that cancer surgery was pretty intense. So, yeah, okay, maybe this was the first. The, he's the trying worst. to buy sympathy. I mean, he's, you know, the, he's trying to, uh, well, the sheriff's are, are trying to have his back, obviously, because they're liable big time. But um, he's, he's, you know, he's being portrayed as this uh, poor 73-year-old cancer survivor, um, you know, great guy who's taken his retirement and volunteering at the at the sheriff's office. But, you know, in, in all reality, um, he had no business carrying a gun and carrying a badge. And it cost someone's life. And to me, the fact that he is admitting that, that he made a mistake... And the, it's not, it doesn't make him a victim. It makes him the perfect defendant in a manslaughter case. That's what manslaughter means. It means an unintentional and accidental killing of another human being, which is exactly, he's admitted to that. He said, oops, I shot him, you know, and then he, he says, I made a mistake. Other people have made a mistake. Well, you know, if, if that, if, if I could bring up that defense, uh, a lot of my clients would be walking, uh, with a not guilty verdict in manslaughter cases. Unfortunately, that's what manslaughter means. Unfortunately for him, I should say. Well, if he was trying to portray himself as a victim that people should feel sorry for, he really didn't do himself any favors when he left to the Bahamas after pleading guilty. I don't understand how the judge. I'm sorry, he pled guilty or not guilty? I'm sorry, not guilty. Right. Thanks for clarifying mm-hmm. that. But then just took off to the Bahamas mm-hmm. after the judge said that it was okay. I think that's really bizarre. That hardly ever happens. Why do you think in this case, the judge let him go out of the country? Well, um, judges make exceptions. If he's out on bail, he clearly has to be back in court or there's going to be a manhunt. Um, and, I, and I'm sure he's out on bail on a, on a serious $25,000. Right. Because, it, you know, um, there are, I don't know about Oklahoma, but in California, at least, a manslaughter can be um, misdemeanor or felony, and so it, it, it to me a twenty five thousand dollar bail obviously low for for this situation, but um, sounds to me like more of a misdemeanor manslaughter, which means you know the judge is going to be more um, lenient with him. And if he explains, look, I I had a prepaid trip with my family to the Bahamas, you know we haven't <laughs> taken a vacation, and you know the judge is going to let him go. But clearly, if he doesn't come back, that's a whole other story. And I think he, I think he will come back. I'll, I think he'll answer back. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't count on a lengthy prison sentence on this well, misdemeanor manslaughter, which if convicted. I'm sorry, four years is what he's facing, right? And he's not going to do all the, the entire four years. He's going to do part of the four years, and uh, and it's 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 a shame. I think that you know this is a situation where it's not about his mistake. It's about the complete reckless disregard of the sheriff's department and giving him a badge and a gun, which has cost someone's life essentially. So um, it's not, "Oops, I shot him. I made a mistake," and other people have made this mistake. It's more like the sheriff's department has acted completely recklessly in um, in giving him this ability and this power to be out on the streets. I don't know if you heard the uh, press conference that the sheriff uh, participated in, uh, his last name is Glanz, I believe, where he said, you know, any time that somebody's life is lost, we should um, we should hesitate and pray. That, right. That, that was his big, I'm sorry. We right. should hesitate 
and pray. I think he's the person who received campaign contributions from Bates. And, and so the allegations are that that's how he paid his way into the sheriff's department. So clearly, uh, you know, they've got each other's back, you know, the boys club in Oklahoma. So, yeah, all right. What bad. else do we have? Okay. So we've got a shocking admission by the FBI that more for more than 20 years, um, agents have over uh, stated the accuracy or the matching of hair to um, people facing criminal trials. Mm-hmm. So apparently 26 out of 28 examiners in the agency's microscopic hair comparison unit mm-hmm. gave flawed testimony in more than 268 trials where 95% of the witnesses were for the prosecution. And there's no actual science, great science, that can match hair. Uh, at Now what it's used for is to... Um, rule out suspects Mm -hmm. but if it's ever used to um as evidence of guilt it's combined with genetic testing they need corroboration right yeah so Mm -hmm. i want to know how did the fbi get away with this for so long because i would think that the defense attorneys would be cross-examining these fbi witnesses and when they couldn't even come up with the written standard of what creates a match Mm -hmm. that that testimony would have fallen apart but it didn't and we had to wait more than 30 years well, to find Well, I out. think um, by their own, by the FBI's own admission, and this is our country's domestic intelligence we're talking about, by these experts' um, own admission, I mean, they're putting it nicely, but, but really it translates into we lied. We lied. Uh, our analysts lied on the stand. And guess what happened as a result of these lies? This happened in, and there were, there were 32 defendants who were sentenced to death and 14 of these defendants have either died or been executed in prison. So it's almost, you know, as to 14 of them, it's too late to even open the case, appeal the case and possibly get a new trial. And, you know, while, uh, this type of evidence is one piece of uh, a, a criminal trial. In other words, there must have been presented other, you know, the other evidence must have been presented in conjunction with this. The issue then becomes on appeal. Um, what, how big of a role did this particular testimony about the hair matches uh, play in the conviction? And the larger that role, the more likely that the conviction will be overturned and there'll be new trials in our courtrooms. Yeah. And I would imagine that it was a big factor in these cases because these witnesses were uh, saying that these matches were near certain. So when you have an FBI expert witness mm-hmm. testifying about something that seems scientific, uh, and saying it was near certain, I can't imagine that that was just a small factor in the outcome uh, of a case. Mm-hmm. So. Well, in relationship to the other evidence, but you know, they they would they would say that they're they're near certain. However, the statistics were misleading, and they lacked research to back it up until uh, the Innocence Project and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Uh, I was a, one of the directors on that association uh, on the board for many years, and I'm still a life member. I love that that organization and that's exactly the type of work they do they go back and they dig up these old convictions and they do habeas work and they fight for reform and in, in the law like sex registration laws and things of that sort and so they did a great job here and now i think the fbi must be held accountable this is this is so um horrific you know for the for the um 
for our justice system to be confronted with the, with with this. And not only that, but I think the FBI is obviously going to lose a lot of credibility. It's like, who else are they putting up in cases on the stand in very serious cases that with the exposure of death penalty? And what are these guys testifying to that could be possibly lies? You know, I think their credibility is very damaged, yeah, not just for sure. with hair analysis evidence, but in general. So yep, agreed. All right, so our third and final on-the-docket story is about the psychological history of the German Wings pilot who intentionally crashed a plane last month. The 27-year-old German co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz, um, who locked the pilot out of the cockpit, had an extensive psychological history, and much of it was unknown to Lufthansa, the parent company of German Wings, until it was too late. Um, Lubitz had, in fact, seen more than a dozen doctors in the months leading up to the crash. Um, he had also a doctor's note. This is so sad. A doctor's note saying that he was unfit to work that was ripped up and thrown away in his wastebasket found by investigators just after the crash happened. Uh, he had also researched suicide methods in the days before the crash and had been treated for suicidal tendency. So what does this all mean for German Wings liability? It's bad. They <laughs> yeah. are, um, Lufthansa is being prosecuted criminally. We're not talking about just a civil wrongful death uh, suit for the 150 passengers that are killed. We're talking about criminal negligence, which is a substitute for criminal intent. You know, in, the, in, in a criminal case, you got to show the conduct and you got to show the, what we call the mens rea. And so in this case, the, the the negligence replaces the intent and and that's because um the prosecutors the german prosecutors are saying essentially lufthansa how could you not how could you not have have investigated this further? Okay, maybe you didn't actually know because after all, what pilot who's, you know, 28, his passion is to fly. He doesn't want to lose his job. It's his bread and butter. Obviously, no one's going to come and say, "I'm suicidal. I can't fly the plane." But we get that. But you know what? You had all these red flags. There were so many gaps in his training. Um he trained he he, he tr- went to training camp. He took a leave. He came back and he explained that the reason he took a leave was because he had severe depression. So he himself admitted that. And they just kind of went through the process and let him in. And and then from the date he was cleared, he didn't start flying for German wings until 2013. And nobody bothered to say, wait a minute, what had you been doing in all these years? And, you know, one of the issues that was interesting for me, because I deal with it in, in my work, were the privacy issues. Apparently in... um German under German law, the privacy issues are extremely stringent. The laws are very stringent to get around. And in this case, one of the claims that Lufthansa is making, look, you know, we've got flight doctors that check out our pilots, but they're just restricted in how much information they can release to the regulators who can then take action on that particular pilot. So we would have no way of knowing. So clearly Lufthansa is like, we didn't know, we didn't know. But I think here there's there's enough red flags that they should have known. And we call that imputed knowledge. You didn't know, but you should have known. You should have taken steps and you should, you know, and, and passenger safety, aviation safety should always come first between privacy issues and uh, any other, you know, uh, hurdle um, along the way. My big concern with how this story is coming out is that it could 
make it seem like this guy was depressed and that's why he did this, which would create a further stigma of people who have experienced depression mm-hmm. and who might now fear coming uh, out to say that they have it and getting treatment for it mm-hmm. because they're afraid of what people will think about them. And I am not a medical professional, although my undergrad degree is in psych and social behavior. Mm-hmm. And professionally, I uh, work with people with depression. Uh, but uh, it's and I know that depression shows up differently in different mm-hmm. people. And it's covert a lot of times. But mm-hmm. n- nothing that I've seen would in depression would make it that somebody wants to hurt other people, mm-hmm. uh, especially 150 other people. Depression is, you know, generally marked by sadness and withdrawal and feeling terrible about yourself. But there seems... It would have to be something else that would account for the sinister nature of planning to kill other people. And, you know, prior to, I think you touched on this, prior to uh, this fatal crash, he um, had seen so many doctors in the double digits, and he had complained of various ailments, you know, to each one, um, where, you know, when you put all of it together, it looks like it's almost like psychosomatic. So I think there was more going on with him. I think he just suffered from mental illness is not necessarily just depression. Mm. And I agree with you that, you know, so many people, at least in the United States, suffer from depression, are functional in their job, they're functional they in their families. They hurt anybody. Yes. And I think Sweden had, uh, to me, I was reading about different the way that different um, um, aviation laws and, and companies deal with this type of issue and pilot safety. Um, and I, I thought that Sweden had the appropriate type of response in the situation or, 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 or plan, which is, you know, you don't get disqualified just because you have depression. But what they do is they keep an eye on you. First of all, they make sure you're grounded until they're, they're, you're completely cleared. And what they do is they have you turn over all your medical records. So it's no longer you just talking about selectively what you want to disclose to your employer, but you also have to submit to psychological evaluation regularly, like every six months. And you cannot fly alone, you know? So it's not just the captain and you, it's the captain, you, and probably a third person, unlike, uh, yeah. Lewis's flight. So, you know, there are ways to, um, you know, they wouldn't pull his bread and butter if it was just depression. I think there was more going on. And one of the, the former, um, executives of Lufthansa made a statement and said, at the time when I cleared him to, to, um, become a pilot for Lufthansa, had I known his full history, I would have never hired him. And it's, it's hard in hindsight, you yeah. know, I mean, it's easy in hindsight, but, you know, going, forward to look out to see how somebody's going to behave is really difficult. The only thing that's changed immediately as a result of this is that um, pilots no longer are allowed to be alone in the cockpit. The United States has always had that as a rule since 9-11 when they implemented the new doors into the cockpit. There mm-hmm. was also a policy that two crew members had to be inside the cockpit at all, at time. all times. Not because mm-hmm. they feared this, but just in case safety happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now it seems that that's being adopted worldwide as a result. And hopefully that's enough to keep this from ever happening again. Cause that is really, really fi- frightening. I, yeah. Horrific. 
Yeah. All right. So I think that's it for on the docket stories. All right. Let's move forward to tipping the scales. Um, and the issue today is the hot topic of body cameras being worn by law enforcement officers. This has been talked about a lot uh, ever since last summer with the Ferguson case and then the whole slew of other police shootings and killings, the Eric Garner case, all of which, by the way, was captured not by police body cams or dash cams, but by bystanders on their iPhones, on their cell phones. So um, what we're now talking about is implementing policies within police departments across the nation where police officers have to wear a body cam. And the reason behind this is that there's been such a great level of mistrust as a result of these cases by especially minority communities of their law enforcement uh, in their communities that this is a way that people feel they're very supportive of this because they feel that this is a way they can trust law enforcement again because now the idea is if the officer is wearing this body camera, um, then you know, we could see what's happening and it's, we don't have to rely on his version of what happened and we don't have to rely on anyone else's version of what happened. And, and, you know, um, uh, basically there are issues with this. Okay. And so what we want to do is talk to you a little bit about what we think about this and then, uh, hear from you hopefully by tweeting us or, or, um, uh, posting your comments on our, on our, um, social media pages. So, Interestingly, I uh, had attended a, a seminar on this last Friday, and I was talking to the LAPD technology officer and lieutenants who are in charge of our pilot program for these body cameras. Um, the issue recently was raised because of the um, Chicago Police Department not releasing a video. This was a dash cam, so the camera was on the uh, the dash of the police vehicle, the patrol car, and they're saying we're not going to release it right now because it's an open, ongoing investigation, but we will release it at some point. So they're not denying release of the video. They're just saying now is not the right time. And I have to tell you that after attending the seminar and talking to these officers, I have a, a, a much larger, bigger, bigger perspective I had than I had on this before, which is all the issues that this is going to raise. This body kit, yes, it's a great idea. It's going to instill trust, hopefully, in um, in in these communities and the African American communities. But you got to understand that everything is going to get recorded. You don't select just what the officer's doing. So as a defense attorney, you're going to see everything that your client's doing that led up to that whatever, tasering or shooting or whatever it is. Um, and yes, it might prevent officers from fabricating, um, uh, you know, conduct by a defendant and might, it may also preclude people from bringing civil rights claims for excessive use of force and successfully because you could see on the video what the officer did and you could see that it was reasonable in response to the situation. But ultimately, the police have the discretion. There's a lot of loopholes. And if the police feel that for safety reasons, for investigative reasons, for for whatever reason, they need to hold off on releasing this, uh, you know, footage, then they can do that. And, and if, if they're doing it in good faith. Yeah. Well, that's good faith. I have a huge problem with this. I think everybody. With good faith? I do too. <laughs> I, have, I have a problem with the police department selectively being able to withhold these videos um, sort of whenever they feel like it. I understand that there might be some circumstances where it would not be in the interest of the public. But in this example that we were talking about in Chicago, one officer uh, opened fire on a kid, shot him 16 times. 
There were other officers around. Nobody else shot the, at this kid. This one officer shot 16 times because of that old I was in fear for my life claim. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody else was in fear for their life, but only this guy was. Mm-hmm. And that was caught on the dash cam. And even though the city is already prepared to sign over millions of dollars to the family, they have not uh, release the video. Mm-hmm. The mayor, Rahm Emanuel, has come out with this silly statement that they won't release the video yet because it's central to their investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, since when has releasing a video precluded anyone from conducting an investigation? I just think that that is BS and you can smell it from a mile away. There might be circumstances under which it would be a good idea to withhold the video, but I think it should be clearly stated and not some BS thing like that. I think that works in the opposite to help uh, it reduces transparency and trust and the appearance mm-hmm. that the police department has integrity. I, and it probably causes, uh, gives more cause for protest, which is, I think, part of, part of why they might be, uh, you know. So now it's a good justification for not allowing people not. to exercise their first it is amendment not, rights. But, you know, but, but you're talking about the civil millions of dollars that are, that are being turned over in the civil context, but you gotta keep in mind that shooting somebody 16 times and being the only officer that's shooting at this person 16 times, you better believe there's an internal investigation going on by the Chicago Police I hope Department. So. Yeah, and, and who knows? I, I, I have not been able to find information on whether the officer is also being looked at criminally, to be charged criminally. But, you know, if these investigations are going on, even one of the two is going on, I think that um, absolutely uh, cities and, and police departments can claim that their investigation and the sanctity of their investigation um, supersedes the public interest in seeing this video. I don't think that it's going to be withheld permanently. I mean, he's certainly saying it's it's going to be it's going to be uh, released, just just not yet. Um, in terms on the on the in the courtroom side of things, you know, in the in the uh, um, on the procedural end, um, in California, we have a very sort of open policy of, with in terms of discovery. The prosecution is obligated to turn over discovery in a case, and certainly any footage, any video footage, is part of that obligation. Um, but you know, like we were discussing this uh, when I when I met these um, LAPD officials. It, you know, it, it raises a lot of concern for the police department and for the LA County DA's office because now there's issues like, well, should the police be able to watch the video before they take down their report? Why? Because if the police take the stand and testify and God forbid their report's a little different from what you see on the video, there goes the attack by the defense attorney. And so this now gives defense attorneys a lot more ammunition to attack officer testimony because somehow the report, because obviously every time you record something, it's going to be a little bit different than the prior recording. And so shouldn't the officers be allowed to actually see the video? They should be able to see it at the same time the public does. Uh, Because I think soon enough we're going to be... I think, you know, writing a police report is one way of, it's one type of recording, and having a video, a body cam video, is a different type of recording. It's real-time recording. And so I think, uh, I think it should be both. And I think the jury can ultimately decide whether the inconsistency in the police report is so great that the officer is falsifying the police report, or it's just minor and forgivable in relationship to the video. But I'm just bringing this up just as one of so many issues that this, um, body cam 
technology is raising. It's also opening up the world of um, what's recorded. At, you know, when the when the officer hits the button on his chest on this little um, device, and this starts recording, now suddenly the things that are not normally on on video are going to be on video. So, like the lineup where people are lined up after a robbery, and the uh, victim is identifying the the um, the suspect, you know, that's not usually on video, um, but now it's going to be, you know, so there's going to be a lot of, and then there's a lot of issues, you know, how much of this can you release? How much of it, you know? Uh, and, and this is our question to you. Do you believe that the um, videos should be released to the public when the public demands them or right away? Or should there be uh, exceptions where the police departments get to withhold them uh, or any requirements, I think they should be, they must articulate some really strong reason for withholding it because it is undoing the benefits that I think cause people to support the body cams being Mm -hmm. used in the first place. Mm -hmm. So let us know what you think. Tweet me at uh, Chelsea Galicia. And at Azari Law for me. And that's, that brings us to the close of today's edition of Justice is Served. Please keep the dialogue going during the week. You could find us on YouTube and iTunes and click like, as well as post your feedback and your comments, because we'd always love to hear from you and know more about what interests you for our upcoming segments. And uh, we will see you next week right here on Justice is Served. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. From producers Maria Menunos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host owner and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.